Good morning. How is everyone? How's everyone? Okay, all right. It's good to be with you. It's good to sing with you. It's good to be able to bring God's word to you. Uh, I, that's one of the things I treasure about this congregation is your attentiveness, your eagerness to hear God's word. And uh, so it's a delight to be able to bring the word uh, to you regularly to do that today. Uh, before we get into the scriptures, let's ask for the Lord's help uh, once again. Father, thank you uh, for this opportunity, this final opportunity in 2023 to meet together, to sing your praises, to pray together, and to open up your word together. Would you be pleased to use your word uh, and by your spirit to do a good work in our souls? Uh, equip us with everything good that we might do your will and work in us what's pleasing in your sight through Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Grumbling is a protest against God's providence in our lives. Lord, make us grateful for even your most peculiar providences. Help us to trust you who know what we do not know and see what we do not see. Uh, those words were written by a uh, pastor named Garrett Kell in a tweet. I don't know if you call them tweets anymore. They're, they're whatever you call those things that were formerly called tweets. He did that on Friday morning. Uh, now, you might remember, if you were here last Sunday, that when we speak of providence, we're using a word that Christians have used for many centuries to uh, convey the reality that God rules and reigns. He governs and guides uh, everything, all things, from the rolling of dice to the election of presidents to the falling of a sparrow to the ground. He orders and guides and directs and disposes all things for the glory of his name and for the good of his people. Providence is the way that the people of God affirm that God is in all the details of life. And so to grumble then about anything is to protest against his wise and loving and almighty care and oversight of the world. That's what Garrett Kell was communicating this past Friday morning in his tweet. Now, what really moved me to read that from Garrett was knowing a little bit of what Garrett and his family have been walking through in the past 10 days. Uh, two Thursdays ago, Garrett's 15-year-old daughter, Eden, uh, suffered a serious seizure while their family was visiting with friends in Richmond. He, Garrett and his family live in uh, Alexandria, Virginia, just outside of D.C. They were in Richmond. Their daughter suffered a very serious seizure. They were unrelenting. Reports later would show them that the, there were seizures continuing on in her brain for more than 20 hours. Uh, her condition worsened to the point that she required sedation. She was placed on a ventilator, uh, and she still is in that condition. Now she was transported back to the D.C. area just on Friday morning. Her prognosis is very uncertain. 
they believe it was an autoimmune disorder that uh, triggered these seizures, but there is much that they don't know. Uh, they don't know ha- what the long-term effect of those seizures will be for her. Uh, and it was in the midst of that, actually while awaiting the helicopter ride to D.C., which had been delayed 24 hours because of bad weather, that Garrett wrote, grumbling is a protest against God's providence in our lives. Uh, The example of this, brother, I, I was able to get to know Garrett a little bit earlier this year when I was on my sabbatical. His example not just in that tweet, but in his regular uh, journal postings that he's been doing on the website Caring Bridge. It, it's been a, a rich encouragement to me. Uh, I texted him this morning and actually shared with him that I was going to be telling the congregation about his situation and encouraging you all to pray. And he, he doubled down. He said he, he was encouraged to know that I was going to be sharing. And he said, praise God for his perfect and peculiar providences. And that has inspired me. I want to be more like that in the midst of hardships and sufferings. And I think that reflects a biblical principle which comes to mind as I think about the portion of Scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning in Acts chapter 16. And the principle is this. God often uses the godly example of other people to spur his people on in the way of godliness. God often uses the godly example of other people to spur his people on in the way of godliness. Whether it's in stories that you hear like the one that I've just shared or perhaps reading a Christian biography or maybe from your parents, the example of your parents or fellow church members or studying the lives of godly men and women in the scriptures. I wonder if that's something that you've experienced that the godly example of other people spurs you on to uh, godliness. I think that principle, principle can be abused. You've maybe heard sermons like, say, from the story of David and Goliath, and you know, we just need to be brave like David, and here's 15 ways that you can be brave like David. That, those aren't always helpful, but it doesn't change the biblical reality which Paul himself actually commended to the Philippians when he wrote to them in Philippians chapter 3, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. He would write a few sentences later in Philippians chapter 4, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So the Apostle Paul commends here that the godly example of other people can be a way in which God spurs his people on in the way of godliness. And part of what the Philippians had seen in Paul that he was inviting them to imitate him in and to put into practice is found in Acts 16, which is the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at. If I, I don't think I asked you yet. It would be good for you to turn to Acts chapter 16 as we continue to read Luke's account of how the gospel came to the city of Philippi in the first place. 
if you were here last Sunday, or if you've ever read this passage before, you'll, you'll remember the strange and surprising uh, providence of God that we saw as we began to look at the first part of this chapter last week, how God's no to his missionary team, right? He, they wanted to go to the region of Asia, and, and God didn't allow them to go there. And then they were going up and they tried to get up into Bithynia and the spirit of Jesus said no. He, he did not allow them. And they took this long winding route and they ended up in Philippi. And at this little tiny prayer meeting, they met a wealthy merchant named Lydia and she heard the good news of Jesus and, she, and, and the Lord opened her heart to believe it and she received Christ and she was baptized along with her household. And that's where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 16. I'm going to read from verse 16 through the end of the chapter. Uh, as we read this story, just be reminded, I just mentioned missionary team. What we're reading in uh, here in Acts 16 happened in a missionary context. Paul, Silas, the others, they were missionaries. Uh, God, uh, as you heard, prayed uh, just in the pastoral prayer there, God's heart is for missions, the work of bringing the gospel to those regions and those peoples where they have never heard the name of Jesus is, is big in the heart of God. It's how we've come to be here. And so it would be good and appropriate as we hear God's word this morning, as you hear this sermon, to be thinking, how might I use my life? Perhaps by getting on a trajectory and going to one of those places or sacrificially using your resources to send those who are willing to go how might my life be used to advance the gospel in those missionary contexts as we're reading here in the city of Philippi? Acts 16, beginning in verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. 
And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go, therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Uh, This is God's word, brothers and sisters. May he be pleased to grant us a blessing in the hearing of it and in the doing of it. Uh, there's a whole lot there, and I trust you would like to be dismissed at some point before the ball drops this evening. So I'll, I'll, I'll just sort of skim the surface of this passage, honestly. Uh, there's more to be gleaned from it, but uh, I'd summarize the passage that we just read with the following sentence. My family told me it was a little wordy, but... This is the sentence. This is the closest to an outline you're going to get this morning from me. In a crooked and twisted world, salvation spreads through singing sufferers who shine the light of their sufficient Savior. Amen to your amen. I trust that's because of the Word of God, not because of my skillful alliteration. In a crooked and twisted world, salvation spreads through singing sufferers who shine the light of their sufficient Savior. And if you hear in that summary statement the echo of another statement that Paul made to the church in Philippi, you have heard correctly. Do you remember Paul writing to the Philippians, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. What what Paul exhorted the Philippians to there, what, what Garrett Kell has been commending and living out in his own experience in the D.C. area, Paul himself had lived that and he had modeled that for their imitation right from the birth of the church in Philippi. So let's just look briefly at the main highlights of this passage. We do see, I think we can see clearly in this passage, that it is a crooked and twisted world that Paul was living in. Not going to spend a lot of time at the beginning of this passage on the exorcism of this evil spirit. I, I think really its main purpose in the narrative is really to show us how 
the missionaries went from this wonderfully sweet context by the river rejoicing in Lydia's salvation to how they ended up in a dark dungeon of a prison cell. I don't even know that it's crystal clear, it's not crystal clear that this young woman who was delivered from the evil spirit even was saved. We're not told about her believing or receiving the word in any way. We're not told that she was baptized as we are told about Lydia and the others in the jailer's household. We don't know exactly how the, what the outcome of this young woman's story was. But we do know that her story illustrates that it was a crooked and twisted world. It was a world of spiritual oppression. She had a spirit of divination by which she could tell the future. A supernatural evil is, is real, and it was wreaking havoc in the first century, and it still wreaks havoc today, even if we have other names maybe by which we call it. This was a world of spiritual oppression. And it's a little bit strange that this woman, by the evil spirit, she was saying something right and true about the uh, uh, missionaries, right? They were servants of the Most High, proclaiming the way of salvation. That's true, but Paul, it says, was greatly annoyed by it. We could think about why. There may be different reasons why, but whatever was going on, this woman was a distraction. She was a hindrance. Maybe she was mocking them. Maybe she was saying the right thing. We know in the Gospels that there were evil spirits that said the right thing, but were malicious and hateful. In some way, this was disrupting the real work of advancing the Gospel. And so Paul uh, cast that evil spirit out. But we see the, the terrible, painful reality of spiritual oppression. Oh, we see it was a world of slavery. That's crooked and twisted. This young woman was a means of financial gain for her owners. Uh, we might use the phrase today, she was an object. She was an object of human trafficking, enslaved by people, so cruel and callous to human life that when Paul rebuked that evil spirit and set the woman free of her oppression, all her owners saw in the loss of her oppression was the loss of their income. And that is truly disgusting. It's a world full of greed. As these owners instigate a mob against Paul and Silas, with trumped-up charges about danger and chaos. They were the ones causing the chaos. And really, it was not because they cared about the customs and the traditions of the Romans. It was because of their concern for their wallets. We see it was a world full of unjust and negligent civil authorities. Rather than soberly investigate this matter, for which they do get called out later on in the passage, right at the end of the passage, these magistrates join in the mob violence stripping the garments off of Paul and Silas, beating them with rods, inflicting many blows upon them, throwing them into prison with orders to the jailer to keep them safely. And the jailer cruelly goes above and beyond the call to duty, putting them in the inner prison, we're told, a, a deep, dark, we know it was very dark because when the earthquake came and he wanted to get their attention, he had to get lights to be brought in. It was a very dark place. I'm sure it was a terrible place, putting them in the inner prison, fastening their feet in stocks, which was designed to put, contort their bodies in very painful uh, directions. This is a crooked and twisted world. It's not that much different than the world we live in today. Fascination with the dark spiritual world, human trafficking, the love of money, 
even over a basic concern for human dignity and justice, ungodly and immoral civil authorities, savage and ruthless persecution of Christians. This is the world that we live in. To be misunderstood, falsely accused, slandered, mistreated, failure of governing authorities to uphold the rights of citizens but, but, but rather threaten them. This is normal. This is the way it's been for 2,000 years as the gospel of Jesus Christ has advanced. It's to be expected around the world today, every day, increasingly in our own nation. We must no, we must remember, I think you're told this often, but we need to be reminded that the gospel, you know what, the word gospel means good news. The word gospel, it is good news, but it will not be received as good news by everyone that we interact with because it is a crooked and twisted world. Because it is a crooked and twisted world, sometimes you do all the right things to serve Jesus faithfully and everything goes horribly at least horribly according to our own senses. I mean, this is, these missionaries, they've gone everywhere. Their travel plans have been disrupted. They keep on going. They keep on marching on. They're, they're bringing good news. They're bringing the message of salvation. They're freeing this, this young woman from her oppression, and they get beaten and, and falsely accused and thrown in prison. When you do all the right things, sometimes things go horribly because it's a crooked and twisted generation. A crooked and twisted world. And that's where Paul and Silas find themselves in this dark, filthy dungeon of a cell with their feet bound in stocks. It, imagine, I mean, put, you, 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 try to put yourself there. Imagine you're, you're walking around in the Detford Mall this afternoon and you, you see someone struggling or suffering in some way. Maybe you see an elderly person fall and you're trying to help them and give care to them. And as you're trying to care for them, you begin to move the conversation to spiritual things and you begin sharing with them good news of Jesus. And suddenly a gang of vicious men surrounds you and they strip off your clothes and pull out some police clubs and for 15 or 20 minutes, they just smash you back and forth between them, beating upon you while the police come to the scene and actually join in pounding on you. And then with open wounds and concussions and broken ribs and internal injuries, without any kind of trial, without any kind of opportunity to defend yourself, they drag you over, they put irons around your feet, and they let you down a manhole for the night. And you picture yourself there in the middle of the night, having no idea whether you're going to be hanged or beheaded or flogged, because they didn't know what was coming at this point, Paul and Silas I'm talking about. They didn't know an earthquake was coming. They didn't know what was happening. They thought maybe the next day is death. What, what do you do there? I'm tempted to murmur. I think I'd be murmur. I don't even know if I'd have the strength to murmur. Well, Luke tells us what they were doing. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying 
and singing hymns to God. That's wonderful. I love that verse. The word here, they were singing hymns. It's not psalms. They were singing hymns. There is a word for psalm, right? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. These were probably songs written by believers. We don't know much about them, but Paul and Silas knew them, and they knew them by heart, evidently. They didn't have a hymnal to pull out in that moment, which I think means they must have been singing these hymns a lot. These were some singing men. And in a crooked and twisted world, not just alongside the river with Lydia when God's saving power has been seen and they can savor it, and not just then, but in a crooked and twisted world, in a dark dungeon prison cell, they were doing what they would in time call the church in Philippi to do, Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. And when we start to protest, no, that's not possible, Paul. He says, again, I say to you, rejoice. They were following in that way of King David who said, and King David went through some trials and adversities, and yet he's the one who wrote Psalm 34, I will bless the Lord occasionally. I will praise the Lord when things are really clicking in my life. No, I will bless the Lord at all times. This was the very teaching of Jesus they were embodying in this prison cell. Jesus had said to his disciples in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. How how do you do that? I've heard it said that the greatest miracle recorded in this passage is not the deliverance of the slave girl. It's not the earthquake that that unloosed the chains of these prisoners, but it was the attitude of these two servants of God in that prison cell singing praise to God. We're We're not given a reason here in Acts chapter 16 for why they were singing, what it was that moved them to be singing. But I think Paul points us to his secret when he exhorted the Philippians to that grumble-free life that would shine the light of Christ into a crooked and twisted world. Remember Philippians 2, 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I read that to you earlier. I did not read to you the next phrase. The next phrase is holding fast to the word of life. I think that's their secret. I think that's how you get to a place with all they had endured in the pain that they were in, in the darkness of that cell, in the middle of the night, how they could be found singing hymns to God. They were holding fast to the word of life. And that's how these sufferers became singing sufferers, praising God even while their feet were in the stocks. Again, we don't know this. I could, I'm only speculating when I say this, but I think there's some biblical warrant for the speculation that perhaps Paul, lying in that prison cell, thought to himself, You know, apart from the grace of God, I'm this jailer. He had been that jailer. Do you remember our introduction to Paul in the book of Acts? 
you may remember him by the, his, his Hebrew name, which was what he was used at earlier in the book of Acts, Saul. We first meet Saul when the godly deacon Stephen is on trial and for proclaiming Jesus is stoned to death. And it says in Acts 7, they cast him out of the city and stoned him and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul, we're told, approved of Stephen's execution. And a couple of verses later, at the beginning of chapter 8, we're told Saul, it's the same guy, Paul, if you're new to the Bible, Saul and Paul, one's a Hebrew name, one's a Greek name, it's the same guy, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Paul was this jailer. But God had changed Paul. And God had saved Paul. He said, years later, 1 Timothy chapter 1, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul never forgot of himself. He never forgot what he had done, how he had lived, how he had hated and persecuted the church of God. But his hope was resting on the fact that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners like him and sinners like you and me. He came, Jesus came from heaven to earth. Merry Christmas. It's the last time I'll say that to you until next year probably. He came to be mistreated and slandered and falsely accused and beaten and shamed and disgraced, bound not with stocks, but bound to a Roman cross to bring salvation from the dungeon of everlasting destruction to all those who had justly earned condemnation by our wretched rebellion against him. And when, when we had no song at all to sing, when we were without God and without hope in the world, Jesus brought those glad tidings of salvation to songless souls, and he put a song of praise to God in our hearts because he did not leave us in the squalor and ruin of our own sin, but he came to save hell-deserving sinners like us. He came, he lived, he died as a substitute, bearing the punishment for our sins, rising from the grave so that in him, by running to him, by receiving him, we might have eternal life. When we had sinned beyond any help of heaven or earth, then he said at that time, lo, I come. Then did the Lord of life, unable himself to die, then did he contrive to do it. He took flesh, he wept, he died. For his enemies he died. Even for those that derided him then and still despised him. Blessed Savior, many waters could not quench your love. I'm quoting, that's a poet named George Herbert, okay? He was like, at some point he went from his own words to other person's words. That's, let me just cite the reference there. That's George Herbert. Oh, what love Paul had known. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And so Paul and Silas 
sang hymns to God in the middle of the night, not because it was just the right thing to do, but because singing is the inevitable fruit of tasting the love of Jesus shown at the cross. Tasting the forgiveness of sins and the rescue from hell and the imputation, the reckoning of righteousness, Christ's perfectly righteous life credited to our account, being adopted into God's family, the hope of being with God in all glory, shining together like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. That puts a song in the soul of the saints. If you're here today and you don't have that song in your soul, if you're here today and you've not received the love of Christ for you, you can receive that today by turning from your sin, by looking to Jesus, the author and founder of our salvation. Turn to him today. If you would want it more, what does that mean? I don't know what to, what to do. Well, someone's, he's gonna ask what to do. We'll get to that. But, but speak to somebody after the service if that would be helpful. But right now, call upon the Lord Jesus to save you from your sins, and he will. And for so many of us, he has. And this singing, this singing can make a powerful impact in the spread of salvation. In a crooked and twisted world, salvation spreads through singing sufferers who shine the light of their sufficient Savior. Luke did not have to tell us about the singing. Right? He could have just said they were thrown in prison, feet were fastened to the stocks, and around midnight there was a great earthquake, and all the prisoners' chains were loosed. But he, he chose to tell us that in the middle of the night they were praying and they were singing hymns to God. And he tells us the prisoners were listening to them. I think that's included because the singing was part of the shining. Salvation comes to this jailer. The servants of Christ might be chained, but the word of God is not chained. Paul would say that himself in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Salvation would come to this jailer and then his household. I told you I was going to say something about the households, but it's 1121. It's, a bell's not going to drop. It's not a bell. It's a ball. It's whatever. The, I'm, past, I'm running a little late here is what I'm trying to say, but I'll just say this. Thank you for whoever said keep going. Don't know that we have a quorum on that, but you know. Uh, let me, I'll just say ever so briefly here of this household baptism, we are clearly told here in this passage that, let me see, let me make sure I have the text. Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to the jailer and to all who were in his house. And they all, it says at the end of verse 34, they all rejoiced together that he had believed in God. So uh, I, I don't think this is a good passage to turn to to advocate for the practice of baptizing infants because it says there that he spoke the word to everybody in the house and everybody in the house was rejoicing in the fact that this salvation had happened. And, you know, I don't know where the littlest babies, I don't know if Selah, Gordon, she's probably not here. I think Samuel uh, Gillum is downstairs. He's not rejoicing that he's been born into a Christian home. We pray, we pray that one day he will be, 
rejoicing for that, but he's not now. So we, we don't baptize babies. There's, that's, there's lots of reasons why people do. Uh, this passage would not be a good one to turn to to defend the practice of baptizing infants because it clearly says that everybody in the household heard the word and minimally they were rejoicing that he had believed and it's hard for me to think that they'd be rejoicing that he'd believed if they themselves hadn't believed as well which I think is why he baptized them. That's not really my main point though. The main point is that God brought salvation to this jailer and his house and he did it through some suffering singing saints who were available who were trusting the Lord, who were steadfast, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, constant in prayer, and, and God, at the right time, he stirred up, he literally stirred up the earth and brought an earthquake, and this man knew he had a need, and he knew where to go because he saw that there's something about these people. He didn't know, he, he, I mean, there's a lot he didn't know. He, he, maybe he'd heard it's probably likely that he had heard the report, at least, of this demon-possessed girl, that these were servants of the Most High God proclaiming the way of salvation, but he saw something about it. He's like, I never, I've imprisoned some people. I've fastened the people in these stocks. I've never heard anybody singing praise to their God in these stocks. It was something about the way that they were suffering and something about the fact that he himself experienced a significant crisis. This earthquake came. He thought he was going to lose the prisoners. If you remember in chapter 12, if you lost the prisoners, you yourself were guilty of execution. He thought he's going to die anyway. He's ready to take his own life. These servants of Christ, crazily, they are freed, but they, don't, they would rather stay in prison and seek the salvation of the jailer than actually just go. He doesn't understand what's going on. He comes and he pleads with them, tell me what must I do to be saved? And they tell him. But do you see how he says, what must I do to be saved? And they don't tell him what to do. They tell him what to believe. Because salvation does not come through doing anything. Salvation does not come through singing songs when you're suffering. Salvation comes only by grace alone, received through faith alone, in the finished work of Jesus alone. And so these servants of Christ, having suffered in a distinctly unique way, loving the gospel, ready to proclaim the gospel. A man comes along in the suffering. His own world is shaken literally and figuratively, and he knows where to go to find the message of salvation. There's an awful lot of application I could do there, but the hour is hastening on, and so I need to conclude. I have some application to make. I'll give you three. I'm just going to say them, and if you want more about them, uh, I would be happy to talk with you after the service, but I'm just going to give you three really quick because there's one last one that I want to just dig into for maybe five minutes in closing. Uh, one point of application I just think from considering all of this is pray regularly for persecuted Christians around the world. Second, develop spiritual muscle memory for singing in suffering by singing regularly every day. And third, study the gospel. Because when we're pricked in the middle of the night and somebody wants to know how to be saved, we need to know how to say it. We need to know what the message is. So I have more to say about those things, but I'm going to pass over them. If you would like to know more, specifically, pray, pray for the persecuted church. There's ways that we can talk about that. Singing regularly, studying the gospel. I want to close with one point of application. I think it's the way to conclude 2023. 
and I'll set it up with a story because you, I know you like those how was your sabbatical stories. I'm going to give you one last one before the year ends. Uh, we spent a month earlier this year in Hilton Head and early in the morning of our return from Hilton Head, I was spending time with the Lord. I know that I struggle with the, that travel, especially the ride home. We always hit traffic. Never, it never goes the way I want it to go. And I know that. I knew that about myself. And I find myself just fretting over all kinds of stuff I can't control. So I, I, I woke up and, and the Lord in his kindness, he got me into his word. And it was a good time in the word. Like a really good. God met me in a very sweet way in the word that morning. It was good stuff. It was, I, I had my index cards. It was good stuff, gospel stuff on that index card. I was ready to go. This trip was going to be different. And it was until some faint bit of discomfort was experienced by me. About three hours into the drive, there was an issue, little issue, really minor issue, not that significant with the cargo carrier on the back of the car. It was not serious. It could have been serious, but we were... God was kind that it did not become more serious, but it just kind of, it shook me up. And then we, we kept going, and there was traffic, and we detoured, and I, I kind of detoured us the wrong way, and then we went off the wrong exit, and we tried, and, and, and I, I was losing it. And I, 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 I said some stuff, I said one thing in particular, I'm not even going to say it right now, because it was so bad what I said. I don't think anyone other than Michelle heard me say it, and she's looking at me as if she does not remember. That is grace and kindness. I said something incredibly stupid. And I think probably for the last three hours of the ride, I didn't say anything at all. It, it happens very rarely for me, but as I got into bed that night, thinking not just about my very pitiful and ungodly attitude for so much of the day, but especially in light of how sweet the communion and fellowship uh, with God had been that very morning, I started to wonder if I was even saved. It'd be a terrible way to come back from sabbatical. I'm resigning because I don't think I'm saved. Praise God, that is not how it ended. That's how I was feeling that night. And I'm saying that because when you think about some godly saints singing in prison or a godly brother pastor praising God for peculiar providences when his daughter's been in a medically induced coma and they have no idea what's going to happen to her. As much as I believe it's in the Bible that God uses godly examples to spur us on in godliness, I know that at the same time what it can do in our souls is make us feel condemned and rotten and miserable, like what's wrong with me? And so I, I, I want to land the plane in 2023 by pointing you to someone else who was a singing sufferer but someone who did something more than just set you a godly example. Someone who rescued you. Someone who washed you. Someone who redeemed you and loved you and did it with a song on his lips. In the hours immediately before his betrayal and arrest and crucifixion, we are told in Matthew 26:30 that Jesus gathered his disciples and they sang 
a hymn. Would you consider Jesus with me as the year comes to a close? He left his Father's throne above. He, the theme of heaven's praises from all eternity, enjoying bliss in the fellowship of his Father and the Holy Spirit. God's very own Son came from heaven to die. And on that night, sweating drops of blood because of the weight and agony of what he knew was on the horizon, knowing that he was going to be struck to death with God's almighty rod, having been betrayed by one of his closest friends and soon to be abandoned by all of his followers, soon to feel the complete forsakenness of God turning his face away from him in indignation, stripped naked and mocked for his meekness, vehemently cursed, struck, spit upon, about to be crushed with indescribable miseries under the undiluted wrath of God, he sang a hymn. He did it for the joy set before him. And in doing so, he endured the shame and the agony of the cross. He despised its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God. And that, dear saint, that songless saint, lousy sufferer, that is your salvation. And that is your righteousness. I hope and pray, and I think we should all hope and pray to this end, that 2024 would be the most evangelistically powerful year in the history of Joy Community Fellowship and that God grants us endurance and steadfastness in suffering to keep on praising him even when life is hard. We should pray. But if any of that happens, it will only be the fruit of abiding in the love of Jesus resting in and rejoicing in him and all the treasures that are found in him. You know what I needed that night after our ride home from Hilton Head as I lay there in bed wondering if I even knew the Lord? What I needed was a song. And at some point it came to my mind. I don't think it was honestly that night. But it's a song, I'm not gonna sing it. I want to sing it, but I'm not going to sing it. But I'll just read it to you. Come ye sinners. Do you know it? If you know it, sing it, and I'll sing with you. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. I know the Lazaruses can sing it. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. That's a Savior worthy of a song. And may he fill us with many such songs in 2024 and beyond. Love you, brothers and sisters. Father, we thank you for godly examples.
they do spur us on. My brother Garrett in Virginia, he spurs me on to love and to good deeds. We pray for him, for his family, for his daughter to be spared and protected from further complication. We thank you for godly examples like Paul and Silas. For many in this room, as I look around this room, even now as I look around when we sing many godly examples of faithfulness to Jesus over many, many years. Thank you for that. Use those godly examples to spur us more and more on in the way of godliness. But when we find ourselves poor and needy, sick and sore, may we cast ourselves wholly upon Jesus, confident that we will find rest and relief in him. Fill our hearts today with joy and peace in believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit we might abound in hope. Amen.